Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, again for this hour and this time that we have in your presence, Lord. Together, as one accord and one voice, we say we love you, Lord, and we thank you for all your blessings that you have poured upon us, including your word that you are revealing to us. As always, I pray that people will hear your voice rather than mine. In the precious name of our Lord Jesus, we pray and commit these two sessions in your hands. Amen. Yesterday, in our first meeting, first session, you remember I said the word sonship is related to four important things. First one, sonship is related to adoption, which I'm hoping by now you have a good understanding of what that word adoption means in the New Testament. Secondly, sonship always is related to resurrection. In the previous session, when I talked about parable of the prodigal son, as I said, that parable is interpreted in many different ways, which I'm fine with all of them, especially in evangelical messages. But at the core, at the center of this parable, it's all about sonship. And when younger son went through that difficult ordeal, he virtually died and was raised. And through that, he came back. And as the way I like to say it, he came home. The homecoming for me has become a very sensitive message. And more I meditate upon the whole message of this conference, that comes up on the surface. That's the prayer of Pastor Paul in Ephesians. For our eyes to be open to see our calling. Everything about that parable is but sonship. In this session, we will see why we go through experiences such as these as believers. Secondly, see the corporate nature of the church. I'm going to begin with a short verse from book of Revelation. You all know this. It's from Revelation 13.8. It says, Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Paul in his letter to the Ephesians speaking to husbands to love their wives. He says in Ephesians 5.25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word that he might perfect her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Though Jesus died for all humanity, ultimately he died for the church. Because all the believers in the church are the ones that they believed in him and are saved. Again, even though he died for all humanity, but this group of people who believed in him, they're in the church. If the Lord was slain from the foundation of the world before the universe was created, then the church must be what God had in mind from the past eternity. That's very simple deduction. God had the church in mind from the past eternity. You come to the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, verse 7, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed of fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true sayings of God. From Revelation 21 verse 2, it says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Revelation 21.9 Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with seven last plagues came to me and talked to me saying, Come, 
I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And of course, from Revelation 22, 17, and the Spirit and the bride says, come. Do you ever think how she made herself ready? Because in these verses that I read, it says, and his wife has made herself ready, the bride adorned for her husband. Brides in this day and age, they get themselves ready with a great deal of makeup. <laughs> Sometimes I don't recognize them. But do you ever think about how the bride in the Bible or the New Testament made herself ready? That's the thing which is very important for the believers to understand. And that's part of the message in this conference. In Gospel of John chapter 1, 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As his own people rejected him, he came to a point in the Gospel of Matthew, and this is what he said to them. This is Matthew 21. He said, therefore I say to you, this, the kingdom of God, will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. Of course, all of you know the nation he was referring to was the church. So God took that calling from the nation of Israel and gave it to the church. At the end of the Bible, we see the bride and we see the heavenly city of Jerusalem that God will dwell among his people for the next eternity to come. Now, everything but the bride is hidden in the Old Testament. Instead, there's so many types of her in the Old Testament. And for that, I want to take you to the First Kings chapter 17. This is one of the stories that we printed. Again, I'm, I'm hoping that all of you read it. You're familiar with the story. First Kings chapter 17. During the time of the ministry of Elijah, spiritual descent was the condition of people of God as they were worshipping Baal and idols. There was the famine that lasted almost three years by this time, and people had no food to eat. The famine just speaks of their spiritual condition, starvation, and in dire need. The famine, which was supposed to be for the people of God, spread even beyond the borders of Israel to the Gentile nations. All I'm saying is, because of their spiritual condition, that the famine was there. Elijah represents the minister of our Lord Jesus, and God was taking care of him as he commanded the ravens to feed him before he sent him to Zarephath. And it was God himself that told Elijah to go to Zarephath. And coming to the gates of the city, God brought the widow and her son in touch with the prophet to accomplish what God was about to do, which is an illustration of how God turned from the nation of Israel to the Gentiles. You see, the famine was everywhere. But God sent Elijah, who represents the ministry of our Lord Jesus, to outside the boundary of Israel. That's just how God turned from Israel. He wants to bring the church into view in this type. You remember what the Lord Jesus said about this very matter in Luke chapter 4, verse 25. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. This widow, she was not part of people of Israel. 
In this story, God was sovereignly working in the life of this widow to bring the church in the view. And the primary interest of the Holy Spirit is that by every means, through every ministry, to secure the bride. The end result is not just to get people saved, important as it is, but the end is a corporate vessel called the bride. That's what God had in mind from the past eternity. In this story, as you read them, the behavior of Elijah is kind of strange. It's more like a selfish type kind of behavior. When they meet together, the first thing he said to the woman, bring me water. Then knowing the condition of how much little food they had, he said to her, bring me a portion of the bread. The widow said, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son, that we may eat and die. Just see how she puts it. She said, I'm going to gather a couple of sticks. That couple of sticks shows how little they had left as far as flour and the oil that she was going to prepare, eat and die. But this is a principle that whenever God is moving in the direction of his plan, he wants to know if we are obedient. God always tests his own to see if we have his interest in heart, whether we recognize that he has an inheritance. We always want blessing from God, but the real blessing comes when we put his interest first. That was the way in which this woman and her son came to fullness. The challenge was accepted by this widow, and moving forward by faith, she put the Lord's interest first, and their blessing, their fullness followed. Remember, that is always the way the Lord works. If he's moving in a direction, he wants to know if you are interested in his inheritance rather than your own blessing and whatnot. As believers, we have an inheritance which is very precious to the Lord. Most Christians do not understand it. The preciousness of our inheritance is the fullness of his son in the church, which is his body. Here's the prayer of Apostle Paul again from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. He says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. If you notice in this verse that I typed, the colors are different. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? The reason I do this, some years ago, if I listened to a verse or read from the Bible, if it popped up to me, took a mental note and I would remember. And I would come home and write it down. I have a special place that I write. But lately, I forget. What I do when it pops out for me, I come home, I copy it from the Bible, put it in a Word document, and I change the text size. I make it bold first. And the colors mean something to me. If I have a magenta, it has a meaning for me. If it's blue, it has a meaning for me. If it is orange, it has another meaning for me. The colors go by intensity of what the Lord shows me. And this is the first time that I notice his inheritance. You know, we always think about our inheritance, our blessings, but this says, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? 
God has an inheritance, and when He moves in the direction of His eternal plan, He wants to know whether we are interested in His inheritance or not. And that's the reason I changed the color and make it bold. This prayer is for us to see and understand that when we come to the, our inheritance, God will also come to His inheritance in the saints, which is what He had in mind from eternity past. To understand the significance of this matter, that God has an inheritance, I'm going to take you to one of the parables of the Lord. And the parable is the parable of the pearl of a great price. We read this in Matthew 13, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went out and sold all that he had and bought it. You know, most of the parables the Lord spoke, he's telling us a story about himself. Like the parable of the tares, he said, the sower is the son of man. He identifies himself as the sower. Majority of the parables, he's telling us a story, and this is no exception. Of course, he's not a merchant of pearls, but if he was, he's the only one could recognize a pearl of a great price I'm talking about in divine things, you know. He's the only one who could recognize the pearl of a great price. This parable says he went and sold everything he had and paid that price. You see, as God, as the Son of God, he left his position in heaven. He became as one of us, and through his life and death on the cross, he paid the price. Paid the price for who? I said, ultimately, Christ Jesus died for the church. So the church is the pearl of the great price in here. Now, personally, I didn't know much about pearls other than the fact that the first ring I bought for my wife when we were engaged was a single pearl ring with the two small diamonds holding the, that pearl. So I didn't know much about pearls, so I went on YouTube and I said something about pearls and out came a number of videos and I watched some of them. What I find out, or what I learned from this video, is that only 1% of the natural pearls are spherical shape, round, nice spherical shape. The rest of them, 99% of them, are irregular shapes. They have some value, but not as much as the round ones. And of course, it all has to do with their luster, color, and size. Past a certain size, the price of a pearl goes up exponentially. What I learned from these videos that I watched, which was most of them documentary-type videos. Ounce for ounce, a pearl of a good size with good color and luster and all that, worth more than any other precious stones like diamond, emerald, sapphire, or what have you. One of the famous pearls in the history was found in Panama. Panama was a Spanish colony back then, and the person who found it was a slave. So being a Spanish colony, this pearl ended up in the possession of the Spanish kings. It has a long story, being among the Spanish kings and the England kings and all that. Cutting the long story short, or long history short, this pearl went on auction in 1967. And Richard Burton, who was an actor, bought that for $37,000. That was a lot of money back then. To give you perspective of how much that money was, when we got married 50 years ago, $20 was enough for grocery for the whole week. Gas was 28 cents per gallon. <laughs> so 37,000 was a lot of money. 
He bought that pearl and gave it to his wife Elizabeth Taylor for Valentine's Day. Later, Elizabeth Taylor commissioned Cartier to make a necklace out of this pearl. And of course, Cartier went to town, designed an elaborate necklace with the centerpiece with this pearl hanging at the bottom. The shape of the pearl is in the shape of a teardrop, a perfect teardrop. And the size of it is just a hair bigger than an inch. One inch is 2.54 millimeter, this is 2.55. And the width of it is about 17.3. It has a French name, which I cannot pronounce. She had it until her death in 2011. Same year, the same necklace went on for auction. It was sold more than $11 million. This is 2011. Now, I said all this for this point. If you search for pearls in the Bible, you will not find it in the Old Testament, which gives me the notion, what I said earlier, the bride is hidden in the Old Testament. Jews don't have any interest for pearls. They are only interested in precious stones that Old Testament calls, like diamond, emerald, this, that, what have you. You come to the New Testament, this is the first time you read about pearls. Then in the book of Revelation, the angel who was showing the uh, heavenly Jerusalem, he showed the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem. Each gate is a single pearl. In my mind, whenever I imagine these gates, I don't imagine them as big enough for one person to go through, but this is heavenly Jerusalem gates. A great crowd of people will go in and out of these gates. So it's a giant single pearl. I told that story not that because I'm interested in jewelry, but I just wanted to give you a perspective if someone could put a price tag on this pearl. Just one single gate. And there's 12 of them. But that's not the pearl of the great price. The entire heavenly Jerusalem is. That's how precious the church is for the Lord. You know, the angel was showing. He said, come, I'll show you the bride. Then he shows them the heavenly Jerusalem. I told this before, you may remember, the first time when I read the New Testament, I went all the way to the book of Revelation, went through it, and he says, come, I'll show you the bride. I was thinking he's going to show him a female bride. I had no clue. When he showed the heavenly Jerusalem, I said, what happened to the bride? <laughs> That's how precious it is. Now, going back to the widow, up to this point, everything is fine. This widow came to their blessing. All of that happened with this single and yet a direct challenge to the widow. When Elijah said, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand for me first. As I said earlier, it sounds like a selfish thing from the Elijah side. I can take you to Matthew when Jesus said, seek his kingdom and his righteousness. All else will be added unto you freely. It's the same thing. Me first. That's what God wants to know. Look at the condition of this widow and her son. Famine was all around them, emptiness, starvation, all kinds of needs, spiritual tragedy. And right in the middle of all that, they were living with all that they needed. They had found the secret of fullness during those circumstances, an experience which set them in contrast to the rest of the people around them. Everybody was starving to death, but this widow and her son, they had enough to eat. They represent that vessel of testimony that they have what others do not have. It was the blessing which came to them through the obedience of faith when they put God's interest first. Now, reading the story up to this point, everything is good. 
they had everything they need to eat until the famine was over, the rain came, the crop produced and all that, and everything went back to normal. Everything was good. Only if the story ended here. But this is what we read in verse 17. It says, now it happened after these things. What things? Everything was good so far for them. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick and his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. As you read, you know that the son died. Now this is what I want you to notice. The son did not die under the circumstances of the famine. He died under the sovereign hand of the Lord. When the son died, the first thing she said to the prophet, this is chapter 17, of course, verse 18. So she said to Elijah, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? We don't know what sin she was referring to. It won't matter to speculate what she was referring to. And I'm glad the Bible doesn't mention things like this. Obviously, there was a sin in her life. It was in her conscience. Knowing some holiness groups, they would get hold of a verse like this and beat the Christians with it. In my 40 years, over 40 years of being a believer and most of the time as an elder, I have heard this when, let's say, a tragedy happens to a family or a believer. I heard this with my own ears from other believers. They say there must be a sin in their lives that such a tragedy happens to them. Such a judgmental spirit. The thing is, when I hear these things from other believers, they make me so angry. I call them illiterate, uneducated, ignorant believers. That's very harsh things to say. Sometimes I want to suffocate them with my own hands. Then, of course, I remember that's not a Christian thing to do. <laughs> it's a bit of dramatization, but you know what I'm talking about. Here is Romans chapter 1, verse 3. I want to read it for you. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. What a powerful thing he says about the Lord. He says, declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. If there was any unholiness in our Lord in his life during that 33 and a half years he was on earth, or any sin, God could never raise him from the dead. But the fact that God raised him from the dead, the resurrection of our Lord is God's declaration to this universe that sin is done with. He's finished with it. When someone comes to Christ, God forgives his past, present, and future sins. This is something that believers cannot understand. Resurrection means that something has been dealt with and put away through death. And with every experience of death and resurrection, God is dealing with a ground of death that the enemy has a hold on you. God is not judging you to death, but rather he's judging to life. In other words, what I'm saying, God will never judge you for a sin. 
because he already judged Christ on the cross. He died for it. He judged Christ for our instead, so he will never judge you for any sin. In an experience like this, remember, you are under the sovereign hand of the Lord. That's one strong point in this story, that God is behind it all. We are not dealing with physical death, but virtual death. See, after her son died, that's the first thing she said to Elijah. Remember, Elijah is the type of the ministry of our Lord Jesus. He said, have you come to remind my sin and kill my son? See, that sin became an issue at this point in her life. Because that sin was in her conscience. It was in the forefront of her conscience. And that's the first thing she blurted out. And in her ignorance, she's blaming Elijah. In other words, she's blaming the Lord Jesus himself. The only reason I'm saying in her ignorance, because she's a new believer. That's the only purpose I'm saying this. In Revelation 19.7, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, why is the Lord dealing with us like this? Well, as a born again, you have a resurrection life in you. We all have it. You are in Christ on resurrection ground, but you have some sin or unholiness, and the enemy has a hold on you on the ground of death. These two grounds, you being in Christ on resurrection ground, an enemy has a hold on you on the ground of death, cannot coexist together. You see, it's all the question of sonship. If you find yourself in the position of this widow, you cannot run the race. Your conscience and the enemy will make sure of it. It's all about sonship. It's all about God bringing you to adoption as sons. What we should know at this situation that we have to make a decision. And the decision we're making as a believer, we have two choices. And I'm not pulling these two choices out of the air. It's embedded in the New Testament in our higher calling. The first choice is when a believer says, I believe I'm a child of God. I know I'm saved. And one day I'm going to go to heaven. I'm a child of God. And you settle in your spiritual journey at that point. You're comfortable with it. Nothing wrong with it. You're born again. One day you're going to go to heaven. But the point is, you're still a child of God. By definition that Apostle Paul gives, as long as you're a child, you cannot handle your inheritance. A guardian has to be set for you until you grow up. But you already decided to stay as a child. So you will not get to adoption and sons. The second choice and the only other choice is, is the path that this widow took. That's when you as a believer say, I love the Lord. His interest comes first to me. I want to run the race. I want to be part of whatever he's doing, whether I understand it or not. I want to be part of whatever God is doing in my life. If that's your decision, and that's something that only the Lord recognizes. I mean, he's the one that sees that, that you're making that decision. If that is your decision, the Lord will take you through a virtual death and resurrection. In the process, you will lose something. What you lose is that ground of death that the enemy had a hold on you. It's all about sonship and adoption as sons. You see, the dilemma or the problem if the Lord doesn't deal with us like this, in situations like this, a virtual death and resurrections, none of us will run the race. 
If we don't run the race, none of us will get to the adoption as sons. When we don't get there, God will not get to his inheritance. But guess what? He will get there. It is already recorded in the Bible. The point is he will get there with or without me. It all depends what choice I make. Whether I'm going to settle down in my spiritual journey or I go for it all the way to the end. Revelation 19.7 Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Did his wife put a makeup? <laughs> what did she do? She's the corporate image of the bride. What did she do? She chose to go with the Lord. It's very hard to explain when going through an experience that the Lord takes you to lose a ground of debt when all the while you feel guilty. Do you know Adele the singer? Yeah? Okay, good. Adele has a song called Million Years Ago. I love that song, especially the version Angelina Jordan sings when she was 14 years old. Anyway, part of the chorus of the song, I relate what she says, what I was telling you. This is what she says. I know I'm not the only one who regrets the things they've done. Sometimes I just feel it's only me who can't stand the reflection that they see. I wish I could live a little more, look up the sky, not the floor. I feel like my life is flashing by and all I can do is watch and cry. What I'm saying from this song is that guilty feeling believers have to a point that you don't even stand your own reflection in the mirror. Deep down, you want to look up the sky. I'm talking spiritually. Deep down, you want to look up, not just the floor all the time. And that's the guilty feeling. The only person can fix that is the Lord himself. That's when the enemy has a hold on you on the ground of death. You're in Christ on the ground of resurrection. As I said earlier, these two grounds cannot coexist. And that's why the Lord is working in this way. Going through a virtual death in the hands of God, you will be able to look up. That's the work of the Lord. What is it? Simply that the gravitational pull towards heaven, and that's God's footprints in your life. For he alone can do that in your life. The last thing this widow said to Elijah it is in verse 24. This is what she said. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Interesting thing she said. By this I know that you are a man of God. It's the same thing if somebody says, By this I know that Jesus is the Son of God. If you would have challenged her before her son died, ask her this question. Do you believe Elijah is a man of God? I'm sure she would say, yes, of course. Absolutely, he's a man of God. And why would she say that? Everything Elijah said became true. But what would be the difference between that knowing and this knowing that she says, now by this I know you're a man of God? Simply, when you go through an experience of virtual death and resurrection, you're transitioning from what is outward knowing which is intellectual, logical, you deduct from all your understanding, he must be a man of God. Intellectually, you go from outward knowing to inward knowing, and that will stay with you until the next age to come. That's the difference. 
the outward knowing, you can change your mind one day. Something may happen to you, you totally change your mind. But when it transitions from outward to inward, that will never go away. It becomes part of your life. Real testimony is always established on the ground of resurrection. So the testimony established in an inward way by resurrection. That's how sonship is always related to resurrection. Amen? I'll stop here. We'll go for the fifth one, I think, 8.30.